President Biden will meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today as they push to find a deal on the debt ceiling and avoid a possible government default. It's Monday, May 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, layoffs and high interest rates have hit the Boston tech sector, but it's a more complex situation than it might seem. They're hiring like crazy. And the most sought after worker is a tech worker. Also this hour, how use of the so-called shadow docket by the Supreme Court has changed since conservative justices gained the majority. And this hour. Even though we're just a little group of students, I think we have the power to change a lot more than we realize. In the wake of recent school shootings, teenagers in Texas are organizing to try and put an end to gun violence. In sports, Celtics and Red Sox lose, mostly sunny around 60 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden are expected to meet this afternoon for continuing talks on the debt ceiling. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, there's less than two weeks left for lawmakers to pass a bill to avoid an unprecedented government debt default. The designated negotiators for the two leaders had a series of stops and starts to their talks on Friday through the weekend, all while Biden was attending the G7 summit in Japan. The president cut the second half of the trip short so he could be back in D.C. for continued negotiations with congressional leaders. The Biden administration and House Republicans have each doubled down on their own red lines, while simultaneously blaming the other side for a lack of progress and stressing the need to avoid defaulting on the nation's debt. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, the Capitol. Lawmakers in Texas are preparing to vote today on a trio of election-related bills. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports. After Republicans lost nearly every significant election in Harris County, many of them blamed the county's elections administrator. They cited Election Day problems, including paper ballot shortages at a relatively small number of GOP-leaning vote centers. But they have yet to provide evidence proving their claims. Now, Senate Bill 1933 would let the Texas Secretary of State impose administrative oversight on any county during an election if a county has a history of documented problems. SB 1750 would abolish the appointed Office of Elections Administrator in Harris County and hand its duties over to the elected county clerk and county tax assessor collector. A third bill, SB 1070, would begin the process of pulling Texas out of an interstate compact used to help clean voter rolls. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. The semiconductor tool maker Applied Materials says it's going to build a new research plant in the area of San Jose, California. The company hopes to discover faster ways to make semiconductor chips. The U.S. passed a law last year intended to encourage chip makers to start building chips in the U.S. again. Vice President Harris will visit the Applied Materials California headquarters today for the announcement. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan is expressing concerns the country will not hold general elections by October when they're due. He's been at odds with the ruling government and Pakistan's army. Khan accuses the army of orchestrating violence during protests against his recent arrest on corruption charges. Any investigation will reveal that there were elements that were planted inside which went out of the way to burn government buildings. We are convinced that this was deliberately done because that was used then to have a crackdown. Now over 10,000 of our supporters are in jail. And even worse, I feel that on Tuesday I'm going to Islamabad. I think they will arrest me. 80% chances are. He spoke to the BBC. You're listening to NPR News.
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston City Council resumes work this week on creating new districts. A federal judge tossed out a previous map created by the council. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports the council and the mayor need to agree on a new map by next week so the fall election is not interrupted. A federal judge is forcing the city to draw up new voting districts. Councilor Ruth Z. Louis-Jean chairs the committee that is working out the details. At a meeting on Friday, Louis-Jean said her map is now the baseline for discussion. I acknowledge and state that it is a starting point, which means that I expect there to be changes. Louis-Jean says redistricting maps proposed by Mayor Wu and Councilor Michael Flaherty would require too many changes. The mayor says she needs to sign a new map by May 30th, so the city will have enough time to prepare for city elections in September. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Striking screenwriters picketed outside Boston University's commencement yesterday. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav delivered the commencement address. With some in the audience chanting, pay your writers, Zaslav shared the advice businessman Jack Welsh gave him. If you want to be successful, you're going to have to figure out how to get along with everyone. And that includes difficult people. Anya Epstein is a New York-based TV writer and producer who traveled to Boston for the protest. David Zaslav, you earned $247 million the year before last. That would cover most of what we're asking for. Pay your writers fairly. Outgoing BU President Robert Brown said the invitation to Zaslav was in line with the school's commitment to free and open speech. BU holds the broadcast license for WBUR. The public is advised to avoid Alewife Brook and parts of Mystic River in Cambridge until at least tomorrow. The Cambridge Health Department says sewage and stormwater runoff mixed into the water over the weekend. The city was forced to release the sewage in order to prevent it from backing up into people's homes. Contact with the water by people or pets can cause illness. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red Fire Farm, organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more, home delivery, or see pickup locations at redfirefarm.com. Things are not looking good for the Celtics. They lost to the Heat 128-102 to last night in Miami. With that loss, Boston now trails the best-of-seven series three games to none, which means they have to win the next four games or their season is over. Head coach Joe Mazzula tried to shoulder some of the blame for last night's loss. I think the most important thing is just sticking together. Um, and then I have to be better. I got to put them in better positions. I got to get them ready to play. Um, you know, I have to have the game plan ready for us to be physical and to execute. And, um, you know, it's important that we stick together. Game four will be tomorrow night in Miami. The Red Sox lost to the Padres yesterday 7 nothing in San Diego. The Sox will visit the L.A. Angels tonight. Mostly sunny today. It'll be around 60, clear overnight with temperatures in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow, mid-60s. It should stay dry through the week. It's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. 
The debt ceiling negotiations throw light on the man whose party provoked them, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The House Republican leader spoke by phone with President Biden on Sunday. The two are meeting face-to-face this afternoon, and their talks may shape the effort to pay the country's bills. The U.S. is a little more than a week away from default, according to the Treasury Department. House Republicans have said they won't allow the government to pay its obligations unless they get concessions on future spending cuts. So how did McCarthy place himself in the center of this? NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt is here. Good morning. Good morning. What position is McCarthy in today? McCarthy's in a strong position. He told reporters yesterday he was encouraged that he and Biden had at least agreed to meet again today in person after talks among their staff sort of broke down at different points over the last few days. While Biden was in Japan, he said he was frustrated that Republicans in negotiations were demanding more and more. Previously, both sides had suggested that there could be uh, room for compromise on certain issues, clawing back billions in unused COVID money, permitting reform, and of course, the sticking point continues to be on spending. Here's Speaker McCarthy yesterday. I've been very clear, Jim, from the very beginning. We have to spend less money than we spent last year. But look, this is a negotiation. Both sides have to prove to their bases that they're not just going to fold on issues that matter to their constituents. So some of this back and forth is not unheard of. Barbara, how did McCarthy get in a position to negotiate face to face with the president today, the president who said he would not negotiate over raising the debt limit? McCarthy has done something that I believe a lot of Democrats weren't sure he'd be able to do, which was pass a partisan bill on raising the debt limit that also tackled spending cuts. He has a very narrow majority in the House. It took him 15 rounds of voting to get elected as Speaker. And I think because of that, some Democrats questioned whether he'd be able to unite the conference in this way. You might recall that months ago, President Biden and other top Democratic congressional leaders kept saying, show us your plan, show us your plan to House Republicans saying, you know, you want these spending cuts, but where's your actual plan? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, House Republicans did pass a plan. And that sort of forced Biden to engage in a way that he said he wouldn't before. Okay, the two leaders said they had a productive talk yesterday. Um, Are they getting closer then to an actual agreement? It sounds cliche, but the clock is ticking here. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been very explicit that the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 1st. And that's less than two weeks away, as you said. Another note on the timeline that makes it tricky, both chambers would have to pass a bill in a very short amount of time. McCarthy has said the House needs 72 hours to read the bill and vote on it, and then it would go to the Senate. So it really is crunch time. Well, here's a vital question, though. To avoid default, as you noted, it would seem to be necessary for the two sides to compromise. And the most extreme members of McCarthy's caucus aren't interested in compromise. They're pretty explicit about that. Is McCarthy Mm -hmm. willing to defy them to pass something a little bit less than the extreme? You know, The hardliners on both sides of the aisle are not likely to support whatever compromise comes out of this. I think that's fair to say at this point in the negotiations. Each side is going to have to give something that in all likelihood the far right and the far left of these conferences are not going to like. But the numbers being what they are, even if those factions don't support a bill, there is still a path for passage. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. 
For a look at how financial markets and investors are being affected by the debt ceiling impasse, we turn now to Mark Zandi. He's a chief he's chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Leila. So, Mark, this country is less than two weeks away from the day the U.S. may not be able to pay its debt. How is the standoff over the debt ceiling impacting people with an investment portfolio right now? Well, Leila, so far, uh, investors are very nonchalant. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some uh, evidence uh, that they're they're a bit nervous. Uh, you can see that uh, yields on one year, excuse me, one month Treasury securities have jumped. And, th and that's because uh, investors are worried about what happens on the other side of the X date, the date when the Treasury doesn't have enough cash to pay everyone, and they're worried that they might not get their money on time. There's some evidence in the so-called credit default swap market of some concern. That's the market where investors can go buy insurance if there's a default on the Treasury debt. They have to pay a premium for that insurance, and that uh, premium has jumped in price. But other than that, uh, no big deal. I mean, nothing's going on in the stock market, nothing going on in the broader uh, uh, corporate bond market. So, so far, I think investors are taking this all in stride, thinking that they've seen this movie before. What advice do you have right now to regular people with investments? That includes many people's retirements. Well, uh, do nothing. Uh, I mean, uh, you, I, most Americans are uh, in this for the long haul. We, we should be saving regularly, putting uh, cash away, investing in stocks and other uh, assets uh, consistent with how much savings we have and what our risk tolerance is. And we, we, this is for the long run. We shouldn't be focused on the here and now. So I'd say do nothing. Uh, I, I, you know, psychologically, you might want to buckle in uh, because I, I suspect uh, we are going to see some bad days in the stock market here dead ahead. I th it may, in fact, be necessary to get lawmakers to uh, sign on the dotted line and increase the debt limit. Uh, we might need to see that turmoil, but don't do anything. Just uh, just buckle in, and um, if, you, if you don't need to look at it, don't look at it. What happens, though, if... I mean, as you say, people are saying, we've seen this movie before, an expectation that even though there's all this brinksmanship, there will be a deal. But what happens if there is no deal by June 1st? It's going to be a mess for sure. Uh, you know, uh, we'll, if we breach, then the Treasury has to make some tough decisions about who, who gets paid, who doesn't get paid. I suspect they're going to pay bondholders and everyone else that the government owes money to will get their money late. Uh, so it, it will be chaotic. Uh, the economy is going to likely go into recession. And the longer it drags on, uh, the more damage it will do, the more severe. And then words like catastrophic, uh, you know, come to mind. And of course, we'll be paying a price for uh, forever because investors are going to demand a higher interest rate to compensate for the risk that this will happen again. So it'll be a complete mess. So in that scenario, um, yeah, uh, we're going to all be a lot less wealthy. But again, I, I don't know that there's anything that you and I as individual investors can do here. We just, we just have to buckle in and hope these lawmakers get it together in time. And if they do get it together in time and they don't default. Are there still long-term impacts on the markets and how does that affect the average person? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, investors are looking at this uh, and saying, look, this is pretty dysfunctional. And uh, why do I, why would I think this is going to get any better? Uh, you know, the next time we come down this, this road, uh, we're going to see the same kind of turmoil and uh, maybe even worse because each time we go down this road, we get closer and closer to, to breaching and, and, def and defaulting. So, I think investors are going to say, hey, you know, you guys aren't money good. You are, you're not the AAA credit on the planet. 
you got to pay me more in interest. And, you know, even a little bit higher interest rate on mm -hmm. uh, a lot of debt uh, is uh, very expensive to us as taxpayers. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to pay for this. Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Thank you. Thank you. This season of the year, spring, is typically the busiest time for the real estate market, but not this year. Here's NPR's Arzu Rezvani. If you stop by an open house these days, it may seem like the real estate market is back in full swing. It's a Tuesday morning. I am here at an open house here in Los Angeles. Doors don't open for another 10 minutes, and already there's a crowd of maybe 25 people here waiting to get in. But there's much more going on here than meets the eye. Come on in. Party started. I'm Dan. Among the crowd touring this bright and airy fixer-upper perched in the hills are Maria and Jordan Rich with their newborn Nico in tow. They're both at home these days on parental leave, and they're growing pretty desperate for more space. We're now in a two-bedroom with two children, three and five weeks old, and a dog. And when he starts work again, he'll be working from home. So it'll be tight, 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 tight. <laughs> for the last several months, they've been visiting open houses, getting a feel for what they think they can afford. And so far, it's been... Depressing. <laughs> Stressful. With mortgage rates climbing rapidly from 5 to 6, even 7% all within a year, the riches feel stuck on the sidelines of the real estate market. When you think you're getting closer, then the interest rates go up and then you're thrown for a loop and then you feel like you're miles away again, right? Yeah, everything's just changing so fast that it's like hard to even like do research ahead of time because by the time you gather that research, things have changed again. But interest rates are just half the battle for first-time homebuyers. Right now, we are in a very tight inventory situation. That's Lawrence Yoon, chief economist with the National Association of Realtors. He says that while buyers have pulled back over interest rate hikes, sellers across the country have also retreated for the same reason. Many homeowners who have refinanced into those low rates or people who have purchased in the past few years at 3% mortgage rate, they are loving their 3% and unwilling to give that up. And that means far fewer houses are on the market this spring for families like the riches to consider at all. The few that do get listed, they go on to command top dollar, giving the impression that the market is hot, when in reality, it's been much slower than in years past. The housing market is currently in paralysis. Uh, we are not getting that uh, huge spring buying normal activity. Home sales are down roughly 20% compared to recent years. But within that slump, the competition remains fierce. Thank you. That open house Jordan and Maria Rich visited, it attracted more than 300 visitors on its first day of showing and has multiple offers. They're starting to wonder if maybe it's time to start looking farther afield. I don't know. I mean, we talk about that every day, if it's worth staying in Los Angeles where we're very happy, or if we should move somewhere cheaper, where we could have a big house and good schools. And and a much more affordable mortgage. Arizu Resvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. 
Learn more at umassmed.edu. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in three minutes on Morning Edition, we do a deep dive into the changing rule of something called the shadow docket. It's what the U.S. Supreme Court is supposed to use for procedural matters, but increasingly the court's conservative majority is using it for much more. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. That's on the radio, a 1979 single from Boston native Donna Summer. The manuscript for that song is going up for sale at auction next month. Christie's is auctioning dozens of Summer's personal items, including artwork, outfits, and a silver goblet she used for drinking caffeine-free Pepsi. The auction begins June 15th, the day before Boston's annual Donna Summer disco party. Sunny with a high near 62 today. There may also be some gusty winds. Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 46. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high near 64. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the new season of Grace, based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skip, And I'm Leila Faldin. We're waiting this spring to see what the Supreme Court may decide on some major cases having to do with affirmative action, redistricting, and student loan forgiveness. Important cases that grab our attention. But what about the ones that don't? Stephen Vladek has a new book out called The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. The law professor from the University of Texas spoke with NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg about how the Supreme Court's use of the shadow docket has changed. Professor Vladek's book focuses on a part of the court's work that until six or seven years ago was mainly viewed as pretty boring. That, however, is no longer true. 
And today, the emergency docket has come to be known as the shadow docket, a term coined in 2015 by University of Chicago law professor William Bode. Justice Samuel Alito hates the term and gave an hour-long speech in 2021 at Notre Dame suggesting that journalists and politicians have seized on it to wrongly portray the court as sneaky, sinister, and dangerous. Nonetheless, the term has stuck. In his book, Professor Vladek argues that the court has only itself to blame. What impelled me to write the book is that over the last six years, we've seen the shadow docket become a lot less boring because the Supreme Court and especially the conservative majority has been using unsigned and unexplained orders to a degree and in ways in which really have no precedent in the court's history. What precisely is the shadow docket or emergency docket? It's the way many cases today, sometimes hugely consequential cases, are decided, without full briefing or oral argument and without any written opinion. These cases are brought to the court by a state or a company or a person who's lost in the lower courts, often at an early stage, and that loser is now asking the Supreme Court to block the lower court order while the case proceeds through the lower court appeals process, which typically takes many months. In short, the losing side is seeking to short-circuit its loss with a simple Supreme Court order that has little, if any, explanation. Up until relatively recently, these shadow docket actions were quite rare. In fact, such end runs around the usual appellate process were considered, well, sort of bad form. The statistics tell the story. During the 16 years of the Bush and Obama administrations, the federal government, the most frequent litigant in the Supreme Court, only asked the justices for emergency relief eight times, or on average, once every two years. It got what it wanted in only four of the eight cases, and in all but one of them, the court spoke with one voice and no dissent. But in the Trump administration, and with a newly energized conservative majority on the court, the picture changed dramatically. In just four years, the Justice Department asked the court for emergency relief 41 times, and the court actually grants all or part of those requests in 28 of the cases. In short, not only did the Trump administration aggressively seek to use the emergency docket, often leapfrogging over appeals courts entirely, but it succeeded with the tactic. Vladek cites, for example, the challenge to President Trump's controversial diversion of military construction funds to build his border wall. A federal district court judge, after hearing the case, ruled that the diversion was unconstitutional and barred the administration from moving the money. Within weeks, the Trump administration went to the Supreme Court with an emergency appeal to block the lower court order, and the high court restored the diversion by a 5-4 to four vote with no written opinion for either the majority or dissent. As Professor Vladek explains, these emergency rulings are supposed to be temporary to allow the case to play out through the appeals process in the lower courts and then possibly to return for full consideration by the Supreme Court later. The dirty little secret is that the later never comes, um, that by the time the border wall case, by the time all kinds of other challenges to Trump policies make their way back to the Supreme Court at the far end of the normal litigation process, 
President Biden's in office and those policies have been discontinued and the cases are thrown out so that you saw this pattern over and over again where President Trump was able to carry out policies that lower courts had held to be unlawful because the Supreme Court through unsigned unexplained orders says, go ahead, President Trump, we'll deal with this later. Vladek's point is not that the Supreme Court was necessarily wrong, but that its unexplained shadow docket rulings today are both inscrutable and inconsistent. The patterns that emerge, he maintains, put the court in an exceptionally unflattering light. The more you look at the overall body of work, the more it looks like the best explanation for when the court is intervening and when it's not is partisan politics and not neutral substantive legal principles. Vladek points to a speech Justice Amy Coney Barrett gave in 2021 in which she assured the audience that the current court is, quote, not composed of partisan hacks and urged people to read the opinions. But, Vladek notes, What's remarkable about the shadow docket is that so often the court is handing down rulings with massive impacts in which there's no opinion to read. Vladek argues that historically, the way the Supreme Court has conceived of its own legitimacy and its own moral authority is its ability to provide principled rationales for its decision-making. We may not agree with the specific principles that justices are articulating in opinions like Dobbs, the abortion case, or Brew in the Second Amendment case, but at least we have some sense that they are principles. The shadow docket has none of that. Vladek agrees that there are times when the court quite legitimately must use the emergency docket to deal with emergency situations, the classic one being a last-minute appeal to stop an execution, or even the series of cases involving the Trump travel ban. Congress, he notes, is not without power. For the first 200 years of the Supreme Court's existence, Congress played an active role in the shape and size of the court's docket, including how the court would handle emergency cases. I think the story here is one where Congress progressively got out of the business of checking the court, and the court progressively got out of the business of wanting to be checked. The book is The Shadow Docket. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Welcome to Monday. Coming up on Five Minutes on Morning Edition, how Boston's tech sector is faring amid layoffs and high interest rates and the implications for the city as a whole. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. With the U.S. inching closer to a potential default, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will resume talks on the debt ceiling today. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports one of the major sticking points is how to cap government spending. The hardliners on both sides of the aisle are not likely to support whatever compromise comes out of this. I think that's fair to say at this point in the negotiations. Each side is going to have to give something that in all likelihood the far right and the far left of these conferences are not going to like. But the numbers being what they are, even if those factions don't support a bill, there is still a path for passage. NPR's Barbara Sprunt. 
The European Union's privacy regulator has fined Meta $1.3 billion and ordered it to stop transferring data collected from Facebook users in Europe to the United States. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Berlin. The penalty announced by Ireland's Data Protection Commission is potentially one of the biggest in the five years since the EU enacted a data privacy law known as the General Data Protection Regulation. Regulators said Meta failed to comply with a 2020 decision by the EU's highest court, which stated data sent to the U.S. was not sufficiently protected from American intelligence agencies. Meta said it would appeal the decision. NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will not say if City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo should resign. Two federal investigations concluded former U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins advised him on his run for district attorney. Speaking on WCVB's On the Record, Wu said Arroyo's future should be left up to the voters. There's an election in five months in the city of Boston. Um, We need to finish the redistricting maps as quickly as possible to make sure that that can happen. But I think it's up to the voters of the district. Elected officials are held accountable at the ballot. Arroyo says investigators did not allege any wrongdoing on his part. We'll hear more from the mayor this morning at 11 on WBUR's Radio Boston. Massachusetts nonprofits that provide services to those with intellectual and developmental disabilities say a proposed increase in pay from the state falls short. Alden Bourne reports those increases are scheduled to go into effect in July. The Healy administration is planning on modest jumps in reimbursement for day programs which include job readiness and recreation. Entry-level workers for the programs would make $19 an hour and some managers about 24 During a recent hearing, Sharon Smith said it's not enough. She's the head of Work Incorporated, which helps adults with disabilities in eastern and central Massachusetts. We are competing and losing employees and candidates to the private sector and to state jobs. In just the past few months, Work Inc. has lost five managers to state positions, earning far higher salaries for essentially the same work. Smith and other providers who spoke at the hearing urged the state to go well beyond the proposed increases. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. is in Massachusetts today. Oksana Markarova will address Boston College graduates at the school's commencement later this morning. She'll also accept an honorary degree on behalf of the Ukrainian people. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books popping up at the Seaport Summer Market the first three weekends in June from 11 to 7. You can kickstart summer reading with Porter Square Books Boston Edition. The Celtics are on the brink of elimination. They lost to the Heat 128-102 to last night at Miami. The Seas now trail in the series three games to none. Game four is tomorrow night. The Red Sox were shut out by the Padres 7-0 yesterday in San Diego. Tonight they'll visit the L.A. Angels. Clear skies and windy today with high temperatures in the low 60s. Still clear tonight and temperatures fall to a low in the upper 40s. Tomorrow about the same. Sunny with a high that may reach the mid-60s. Right now it's 59. Nine degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. 
Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Dozens of tech companies in the Boston area have announced layoffs over the last few months. They're part of a wave of job cuts hitting the industry, and that's prompting questions about the state of tech and how it's affecting the local economy. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer takes a look. Layoffs can be devastating, and Daniel Achampong is seeing more of them this year. He leads a venture capital firm focused on entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds. It's not just numbers, right? These are families. They have People have responsibilities to to themselves, to to kids, and all these other things. Companies like Akamai, iRobot, and HubSpot are among the local businesses who've laid off employees. But startups will feel a slowdown in the industry the most if they don't already. Higher interest rates mean money is more expensive to borrow. So entrepreneurs who depend on borrowing money will have a tougher time in the next 6 to 18 months, says Ari Fine-Glantz. He's the executive director of the New England Venture Capital Association. We were always going to come back to a bit of a correction because the last two and a half years were artificially frothy. Glance is referring to record-breaking fundraising in 2021 and 2022 for Massachusetts startups. But keep in mind, companies are still hiring. They're hiring like crazy. And the most sought-after worker is a tech worker. That's Sarah Frame, who leads the industry group Mass Technology Leadership Council. She says it's important to look at the recent jump in layoffs in a larger context. The labor data tracking firm Lightcast counted almost 26,000 unique postings for tech jobs in the state for March. That's also in companies that have already announced layoffs. A lot of those companies are still hiring for hundreds of roles that are just different. A Chumpong says there is still a lot of money to fund tech. But more conservative investors mean deals might take longer. Could that affect the pace of innovation in the state? He doesn't think so. And this makes me believe that we are going to see this generation, some of the greatest generation of builders that we've seen in our lifetime because of just how people are building and innovating in in an environment like this. A Chompong says entrepreneurs will have to work harder to convince investors their companies have a path forward and a lucrative one at that. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Back in 2016, Democrat Joe Manchin endorsed Jim Justice for governor of West Virginia. Justice was a coal mine owner. He also was a Democrat, as Joe Manchin was. Now Justice He is a Republican, and he wants Senator Manchin's job. NPR's Dave Mistich reports on a 2024 race, one of several that will decide control of the Senate. In announcing his run for Senate, Jim Justice addressed the crowd gathered at his lavish Greenbrier Resort with a line he's repeated to West Virginians for years. Too many politicians today want something for them, and I've never wanted anything. Justice, whose campaign did not respond to NPR's request for an interview, was once listed by Forbes magazine as a billionaire. In the political arena, he's framed himself as folksy, and he's leaned into an unconventional approach. He once unveiled a platter of bull manure while announcing a budget veto. And he had a public spat with actress Bette Midler after she called the state poor, illiterate, and strung out. Her comments were initially directed at Joe Manchin. But in a State of the State address, Justice held up his bulldog and told Midler to kiss the dog's, quote, hiney. 
He mentioned the feud just last month while announcing his Senate campaign. For God's sakes of living, you know I'm different. Anybody that would hold up a bulldog's behind to the camera to stay the state for Bette Midler absolutely will just about do anything. 27-year-old Kennedy Roberts of Morgantown says Justice's penchant for improvised parables, colloquialisms, and other antics plays well with him. If this were someone who you sensed dishonesty in, it would come off as performative. But it's not so much performative as it is theatrical. It's, there is an honesty behind it. While he has the support of many West Virginians, including Roberts, there have been many scandals clouding his time in office. In 2016, an NPR investigation showed Justice's companies owed millions in unpaid taxes and mine fines. And there's been other legal troubles. A Democratic state lawmaker sued Justice to get him to abide by the state constitution and reside in the state capital of Charleston. While in office, Justice announced he and state officials he'd appointed had reached a deal to clear his tax debts, though no details were released. The residency suit was dismissed, with Justice agreeing to live in the governor's mansion after being ordered to do so by the state Supreme Court. More recently, lenders have taken his businesses to court over allegations of unpaid debts. Justice's son, who oversees these businesses, says they have a path to pay off these loans, but have been unable to reach an agreement with the lender. Back in Morgantown, Robert says these legal issues don't concern him. I couldn't really even tell you other than in broad generalities, what exactly the accusations are against Governor Justice. During the pandemic, Justice captured residents' attention through regular briefings, reading the ages and home counties of every person who died of COVID. He made note of it as he kicked off his Senate campaign. This state didn't shut down. We made the right decisions. We made the right decisions to protect our counties and on and on and on. Over the course of his two terms as governor, Justice has tackled some top conservative priorities. He signed a near-total ban on abortion, a ban on gender-affirming care for minors, a bill that allows guns on university campuses, and big cuts to the state's personal income tax. In terms of his Senate race, Justice recently tweeted that securing the southern border would be his top priority. West Virginia House Speaker Roger Hanshaw says Justice has approached the governor's office the same way he oversees his sprawling business ventures. What he excels at and what he likes to do is talk in terms of philosophy and general approach and overall concept and then leave it to the legislators and his staff to really formulate the specific policies. Despite the GOP's dominance in West Virginia, Hanshaw, a Republican, says he wouldn't count out Manchin, who plays a key role with Democrats holding a slim majority in the Senate. No one's ever made any money betting against Joe Manchin in politics. And uh, if he decides that he's going to be in the race, that will be a competitive race. But before Justice might get a chance to take on Manchin, he'll have to win a primary that includes Congressman Alex Mooney. And the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee is suing Justice for not releasing his schedule as governor under a public records request. Justice's office says his schedule only exists in draft form. West Virginia University political science professor Sam Workman says former President Donald Trump will likely be another factor as Justice and Mooney seek Trump's endorsement. And how much that matters is anybody's guess, but if it's going to matter anywhere post-midterms, it's going to be here in this state. Manchin has yet to announce his plans for 2024, but as Justice announced his Senate campaign, Manchin put out a confident statement promising he'll win any race he enters. Dave Mistich, NPR News, Morgantown, West Virginia.
It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, Texas teenagers are engaging in more walkouts and protests against gun violence despite major political hurdles in their state. In your forecast, low 60s today under sunny skies. It'll also be a bit windy. Tonight it falls to the upper 40s. Then tomorrow we may get to the mid-60s and it'll be sunny. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Russell's Garden Center. Seven acres of plant varieties, unique bird feeders, and garden decor. A shopping experience for beginning and advanced gardeners, Russell's Route 20 Wayland. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. A new lawsuit claims CVS's use of artificial intelligence to screen job candidates violates Massachusetts law. The Rhode Island-based drugstore chain uses AI technology during video interviews to help determine an applicant's integrity. The Boston Globe reports a lawsuit by a Milton resident claims that violates a state law that forbids employers from using lie detectors and other devices as a condition of employment. A Boston-based startup says it successfully launched the world's first commercially built weather radar satellite into orbit. The satellite is the first of dozens Tomorrow.io plans to launch in the next two years. It says the network will provide companies like airlines with data to better plan for severe weather. Burlington-based Nuance Communications is cutting jobs. It's unclear how many people will be affected by the layoffs. The Boston Globe reports cuts come one year after the speech-to-text company was bought by Microsoft. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. And from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have more than one story this morning about attempts to address gun violence. Columbus, Ohio, is not allowed to regulate guns, so it tried to regulate people imposing curfews on some late-night businesses. In Texas, some high school students are taking their own approach to gun violence. Here's Caroline Love with KERA in Dallas. How big do we want them to be? Hillcrest High School Students Demand Action Club meets on Tuesdays in a dimly lit science classroom. The kids' plastic and mesh backpacks are strewn about. They can't carry regular ones. Dallas schools started requiring clear backpacks last year. The students here wear a lanyard with their school ID at all times. It's to help the safety around the school. That's Bryn Beecham. The 16-year-old founded the Students Demand Action chapter at her school after it had three lockdowns. It advocates against gun violence. The campus also had threats on social media recently. The threats turned out to be false, but Beecham says she's still scared. I'm nervous walking in every day because I don't know if I'm going to be able to walk out 
15-year-old Riley Collins from Plano, Texas, says she worries about gun violence at her school, too. It's ingrained in you to be scared of it because it's so common. Collins School also has a Students Demand Action chapter. The club organized a walkout to protest gun violence in April. It was a windy day, but hundreds of students still attended. School shootings have gone up. David Reedman from the K-12 Shooting Database says this year is on track to have about 400. He says most gun violence at schools is an escalation of a fight, not mass shootings. And the shooter has a habit of carrying a gun to school. They never planned to shoot someone that day, but something escalated into a shooting. And often bystander students are struck. School shooters tend to be young, says Dr. Sandra McKay. She teaches pediatric health at the McGovern Medical School in Houston and says the average age is 16. That teen mind is impulsive, so we we want to reduce their ability to be impulsive with something that is a dangerous weapon to them. The case says most underage shooters get their guns from their homes, which is why she advocates for safe firearm storage, like in a gun safe. Safe storage is a good practice, says gun rights activist Chris McNutt with Texas Gun Rights but his organization opposes laws that make it mandatory. The responsibility should be on the gun owner that they properly secure their firearm in a way that makes sense to them. McNutt says he also doesn't support raising the age to buy firearms in Texas from 18 to 21. He says if 18-year-olds can vote and join the military, they should be able to buy guns. A University of Texas poll found that most Texans do support raising the legal age to buy firearms. But the lack of action on gun violence reforms from lawmakers is frustrating for Hillcrest students like Nev Healy. Yet, she remains hopeful. Even though we're just a little group of students, I think we have the power to change a lot more than we realize. Until that happens, the students in this group say they will continue to plan walkouts and sit-ins to raise awareness for their cause. For NPR News, I'm Caroline Love in Dallas. This afternoon on All Things Considered, a conversation with Patricia Arquette. It was so good. In a series called High Desert, the actress at the top of her field plays a woman whose life is hitting bottom. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or turn on a radio. This is NPR News. Join Lisa Mullins for WBUR's All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 6.30 here on 90.9 WBUR or on the WBUR mobile app. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in just a couple minutes on Morning Edition, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison talks about his new book about police violence and prosecuting former officer Derek Chauvin. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice. Advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Thousands of miles of underwater fiber optic cable crisscross the world on the ocean floor. Over 95% of all internet traffic carried between continents goes through this physical infrastructure, these cables. And so the internet we use every day would not function without them. 
Now those undersea cables are becoming part of a new battle between China and the U.S. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. President Biden will meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today to work on a debt ceiling deal and avoid a government default. Facebook's parent company, Meta, has been fined a record $1.3 billion for violating data privacy rules in the European Union. And Ukraine says it still has a small foothold inside Bakhmut, despite a Russian claim that it fully captured the city. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. It won't get much warmer today than it is now. Temperatures will top out in the low 60s and it'll be sunny and windy. Tonight, upper 40s. Then we may reach the mid-60s tomorrow under sunny skies. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Three years ago this week, George Floyd, a black man, was murdered by police in Minneapolis. It was caught on video. That video ran for more than nine minutes. Floyd's neck is under a white police officer's knee as he pleads for his life. Protests erupted in Minneapolis and then around the world. And when the local community lost faith in the county prosecutor, the job of building the case against the police who killed Floyd fell to Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. For me, it was a gut check moment, one of those moments where you ask yourself, what am I about and what am I in this for? And my answer had to be, we're going to do anything we can to try to make sure that the outcome is fair, just and right. He got convictions for former police officer Derek Chauvin for killing Floyd and then three other police officers for aiding and abetting. Three years later, Ellison is out with a book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. In it, he writes that the outrage over Floyd's killing offered a possibility of finally ending the cycle of state-sponsored violence against African Americans. We have not gotten to the point where we've arrested this problem, but I still believe that the George Floyd prosecution still offers a possibility if we muster the political will to bring it to a stop. In what way? I mean, I remember being in Minneapolis when the verdicts came in and there was this absolute shock and then elation that accountability actually happened. And you said at the time that it wasn't justice that day, that it was accountability, which is a step towards justice. But since that time, there's been Tyree Nichols chased by officers after a sure. traffic stop in Memphis. Jalen Walker in Akron, Ohio, shot dozens of times. Patrick Leoye, Amir Locke in Minneapolis. Just a few examples. I mean, what does have to happen? We need to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act for the signal that the highest body of legislators in our country have said that this is a very serious problem that needs to be fixed. We need to prosecute criminal conduct whether the person has a badge or not, people need to be fired when they break the rules consistently. I don't think we're going to go from a bad situation to a perfectly good one overnight. There are times when this is uh, action that officers must take to preserve their own lives and others. But there are still far too many cases where, like the Tyree Nichols case and others, that just seem unnecessary and brutal, and they tear the fabric of our society. What specifically in that act 
will change the way policing happens. We need to have a national registry so that if you have an officer who has violated somebody's human rights, violated department rules, cannot just go to another department and just start up there. One prominent example is with the uh, Tamir Rice case, where one officer was found to be unfit to serve in one Ohio police department and then goes to Cleveland and gets hired. I mean, I'm thinking of Miles Cosgrove, too, who pulled the trigger and the killing of Breonna Taylor was fired and now just moved to the sheriff's department in a neighboring county. Yeah. I think that the recruiting challenge that policing as an industry is facing Mm -hmm. might have something to do with the fact that people like Derek Chauvin and Miles Cosgrove diminish the reputation of the profession. Now, you spend some time in the book examining the race of two of the officers that were convicted of aiding and abetting in George Floyd's killing. One is Alexander King, a biracial man who identifies as Black. And he, according to your book, got into law enforcement to change things, to make it better. There is this idea, this notion that I think is incorrect, that you have white officers killing Black people, and that is the model. In fact, we know that isn't the way it is. If you are a female officer or officer of color and you join that department, and if that department has a toxic culture, you are going to be pressed into it. And so it's not the case that even a uh, young black man who joins the police department who might go in with the best of intentions is just going to change that institution if his FTO is demonstrating the worst conduct as uh, J. Alexander King's FTO was Derek Chauvin. Mm nearly diversifying departments without real changes at the top, including cultural changes, you're just going to replicate the same results. And those changes have to do with accountability, with ridding the system of impunity, and just getting more officers of color or female officers is not a panacea. Now, one of the last chapters in your book is about what happened after prosecuting the case. You almost lost your reelection <laughs> bid for attorney general. Yep. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, folks who are connected to law enforcement unions spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to defeat me. They did it because they wanted to send a message that if you prosecute a member of law enforcement, you might be risking your job. And if I would have lost my election, that would have been too bad, but I would have had no regrets. I don't want any prosecutor in the United States to ever have to say, I'm going to pursue justice or I'm going to look out for my own political interest, Mm -hmm. which would mean that I might back off. And that's why I felt really, really compelled to do everything I could to win, because I wanted prosecutors to know you can do the right thing. You're just going to have to survive some of these tough elections after some of these tough cases that you have to take. Mm -hmm. We want to break the wheel, but the reality is we're going to have to chip away at it. Your book feels like a historical record from inside the prosecutor's office, from your viewpoint as attorney general, from the moment you cried watching the video of George Floyd being murdered to the moment his killers were held accountable. Why is it important to have this record? Because sadly, these kind of things are likely to happen again before we bring this phenomenon to an end. I felt very, very firmly, very strongly that I want other folks who who care about policy issues, just ordinary citizens, prosecutors, city council members, all kinds of mayors, you know, Congress, to know what happened from the inside so that they can draw whatever lessons are there so that we can bring this problem to a close because, one, we can stop it. 
we can stop police brutality, we can have a better relationship between police and community. And I think creating a historical record is key. And I hope somebody reads this book and says, you know, this could happen in my town. Here's some things they did here that worked. Here's some things they did that maybe didn't work. And we can use them to prevent and to stop this problem, to break the wheel. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. His new book is Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. Thank you so much. Thank you, Layla. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Sunny, windy, and low 60s today. Clear skies and upper 40s tonight. Sunny again tomorrow and slightly warmer in the mid-60s. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theatre. Just announced, don't miss artistic director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston. Season ticket packages available now. Learn more at HuntingtonTheatre.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy meet today in hopes of finding an agreement that avoids a federal default that could happen as soon as June 1st. It's Monday, May 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, people are finding themselves without health insurance as pandemic-era rules that automatically renewed their Medicaid coverage expire. Also, Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina has filed paperwork to run for president in 2024. We Look at what that means for former President Trump's chances of retaking the White House. If he gets beat in Iowa, I think it's game on to the nomination. If he wins Iowa by a big margin, he's your nominee. And this hour. Our efforts to control STIs for the last 50 years have not succeeded. It's time to do something different. A potential new treatment for sexually transmitted infections is gaining support from experts. Sunny and low 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has returned to Washington after attending the G7 summit in Japan. He was deeply involved in debt ceiling talks over the weekend. These halted for a time, but have since resumed. Biden will meet House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today at the White House for fresh talks. McCarthy says Republicans are focused on fiscal discipline. We've got to find ways that we can have savings. We've got, we got to be smart about the waste, the COVID money that has sat out there for two years. We've got to be able to, we've got to, be able to grow the economy. But Democrats and Biden say the GOP is also focused on stringent work requirements that will force millions of Americans to lose Medicaid. There may be compromise over unspent money for COVID projects and on speeding development for new energy projects. The U.S. economy has slowed as the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates to reduce inflation. Steve Beckner reports a May survey from the National Association for Business Economics reflects concern that the economy could slip into recession. The business economists are slightly more upbeat about the outlook than a few months ago, but still expect real GDP growth of just four-tenths of a percent this year. The group's president, Julia Coronado, says her members are divided as to whether a recession is likely in the next year. 
Although some Wall Street players hope the Fed will reduce interest rates later this year, the economists doubt it will cut rates until the first quarter of next year. Until then, they expect the key federal funds rate to stay above 5% as the Fed keeps trying to reduce inflation to 2%. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. Minnesota lawmakers have passed legislation legalizing recreational marijuana in the state. From Minnesota Public Radio, Samuel King reports the governor is expected to sign the bill into law. Starting in August, Minnesotans would be able to legally grow and possess limited quantities of marijuana, but it could be up to 18 months before state-licensed dispensaries are set up. Nevertheless, the bill's House author, Democratic Representative Zach Stevenson, says creating a state marketplace with only a 10 percent tax rate will make Minnesota safer. That will mean that Minnesota will have uh, one of the lowest tax rates on cannabis in the country, which again is very important to our goal of transitioning from the illicit marketplace into a legitimate marketplace. Minnesota would become the 23rd state to legalize recreational marijuana. For NPR News, I'm Samuel King in St. Paul. In Ukraine, the contested Zaporizhia nuclear power plant operated on emergency backup power for several hours today. It's the seventh time this has happened. The plant is held by Russian troops. Ukraine's top power official warns that if the emergency backup generators fail in Zaporizhia, there will be a radiation hazard and the chance for a nuclear disaster. This is NPR. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Protesters made their voices heard this weekend at Boston University's commencement. They were upset with the speaker, Warner Brothers Discovery president and CEO, David Zaslav. As WBWAR's Walter Ruthman reports, Zaslav and other studio heads are at odds with the Writers Guild of America, which has been on strike for weeks. Graduating senior Talia Havivi said she couldn't cross the picket line. Even if it's like my commencement, my day to celebrate, it just completely goes against my code of ethics and I don't have it in me. The history and sociology major joined the protesters instead. TV writer and producer Anya Epstein said she drove up from New York to send a message to Zaslav. Pay your writers fairly and also make content that isn't just Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. Zaslav was booed when he received his honorary degree and heckled throughout his 20-minute speech. BU President Robert Brown told the student newspaper it's not their policy to disinvite speakers because of labor disputes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Another person speaking to BU graduates yesterday, Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She's the first black woman on the court and a graduate from Harvard Law. She spoke to graduates at BU's law school. And I could not possibly have predicted that my professional path would lead to where I am today. Anything is possible. We should note that BU holds the broadcast license for WBUR. Town officials in Hull say they need more guidance from the courts on how to handle their elections. A fire on Election Day earlier this month blocked access to the town's only voting precinct. A judge ruled that may have disenfranchised some voters. He did not order a new election, but said it may be the best thing to do. Town leaders say incumbents will remain in office until the issue is resolved. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Charles River Apparel's warehouse event, June 2nd and 3rd in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. 
It was a bad night for the Celtics in Miami. They lost Game 3 of their playoff series against the Heat. The final was 128-102. to The next loss means the Celtics' season is over. Jason Tatum is trying to remain optimistic. We just got to try to move on. Uh, prepare, get ready, you know, practice, film and stuff for tomorrow. Um, and, I, you know, obviously we're in a tough position. But... Um, you know, we just got to have some pride, bounce back. Game four will be tomorrow night in South Florida. The Red Sox lost to the Padres 7 nothing yesterday in San Diego. The Sox will visit the Angels tonight. Mostly sunny today. It'll be around 60, clear overnight with temperatures in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow, mid-60s. It should stay dry through the week. It's 58 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We get a better picture today of the 2024 elections. Iowa is preparing for its traditional first-in-the-nation caucuses, and we hear from there in a moment. We also hear this hour from California, where there's an open Senate seat. A member of Congress is trying to become one of the few black women ever to serve in the Senate. What are the barriers? Tim Scott of South Carolina is the Senate's only black Republican. And starting today, he seeks a promotion to the presidency. In an interview with a New Hampshire TV station the other day, he outlined his theme of optimism. I think that this country can do for anyone what she has done for me. So restoring hope creating opportunities and protecting the America that we love. You'll hear a lot more about that. To win the nomination, he would have to overcome a rival who accentuates the negative, former President Trump. NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne is covering Tim Scott's announcement. Don, good morning. Good morning. Okay, people in Washington know Tim Scott very well. Some uh, regular cable TV viewers will know him very well. But for those who don't, what's his background? He's been in the U.S. Senate for a decade. Before that, he was a congressman. And before that, the South Carolina State House and earlier the Charleston City Council. So it's been a steady climb. He is the only black Republican in the Senate. He's a conservative. He is anti-abortion rights. He's a strong advocate of tax cuts as economic policy. But he is also as well known for his positive demeanor. He says over and over that there's far too much rancor in politics today. Although he's doing something a little aggressive here in that he is the second South Carolinian to get in the race. Nikki Haley, the former governor and former UN ambassador, is already in. Uh, people are talking about that, especially in South Carolina. And as alternatives to Trump, both Scott and Haley do seem to occupy similar lanes, right? Uh, these are two of the most popular homegrown political figures ever in the state. And and by the way, it was Haley as governor who appointed Scott to the U.S. Senate to fill a vacancy. Mm. So it's unusual they're both seeking the nomination at the same time. It's a small state, but... Remember, it does play a disproportionate role, given that it's the first southern state to hold a primary. Outwardly, there doesn't seem to be any bad blood between Scott and Haley. Each appears to have decided this is their time. Although, of course, former President Trump insists it's his time yet again. How's he responding? 
Well, uh, Scott's poll numbers are low, single digits, so Trump might have just ignored him. Uh, not so, uh, though the reaction actually came from the pro-Trump super PAC, Make America Great Again, and mostly the statement used Scott's announcement for president to mock Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, saying mm. the only reason Scott got into the race was because DeSantis has proven to be so weak in the polls. Uh, the statement did uh, hit Scott on some issues, including his support for more financial aid to help Ukraine. Although that sort of captures the narrative here, that Trump statement, in that it would seem that the Republican field is a number of people who are each trying to overcome Trump. How does that field look right now? Uh, you know, even with this growing list, there haven't been a lot of direct attacks on Trump yet, uh, even with all of Trump's legal troubles hanging out there. Those officially running as of now include Trump, Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, and of course, Scott is announcing today. Within days, we expect a formal announcement from Ron DeSantis. Mike Pence, the former vice president, is reportedly close to declaring. Other possibilities include New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Then there are others most people have never heard of. Most Prominent among them is businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, who's been getting some attention. And others beyond these might still join the race. Don, thanks so much. Pleasure. That's NPR national political correspondent Don Gagne. In the coming months, Tim Scott, as well as other Republican presidential candidates, are likely to be seen in Iowa. That's because the state kicks off the GOP presidential primary race with its first in the nation caucuses in early 2024. Bob Vanderplatz is president and CEO of the Family Leader, an Iowa-based Christian activist group that's influential in Republican politics there. In a conversation with our co-host A. Martinez, Vanderplatz said the state is not a lock for any Republican right now, but that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has had a good start in Iowa. His record in Florida plays exceptionally well in Iowa. Obviously, Floridians rewarded him with a landslide victory in the Sunshine State, uh, much like in Iowa, where Governor Reynolds was well-received. Both of them kept the schools open during COVID. Both of them have implemented school choice in their state. And both of them have taken on the, the woke agenda, basically, I think the more he makes a tie to Governor Reynolds in the state of Iowa, the better it will be for him. When it comes to abortion rights, how do you think the candidates are appealing to voters so far? Well, I think what it is on the abortion issue is that every candidate needs to deliver their message with clarity, not with nuance and confusion. Uh, so, for example, President Trump's answer at the CNN town hall with Caitlin Collins about we're, we're ready to make a deal that'll be great for everybody. Uh, that's not saying anything. That's very nuanced. It's very confusing. And I don't think it's going to win a whole lot of votes either way. But to offer it with clarity and that a candidate would be a champion for a culture of life, for Governor DeSantis uh, and again, a Governor Reynolds, who both signed heartbeat bill legislation, I think it's all in how they communicate it. But I think they need to be clear on it. But for, say, any Republican candidate, uh, Bob, that wants to try and ding Donald Trump, can't he always fall back to saying, hey, if it wasn't for me, the Supreme Court wouldn't be the way it is and Roe v. Wade would still be the law of the land? <laughs> well, he definitely can say that. And he is saying that. That's a very good thing. But then it's how do you follow it up? To say that the heartbeat bill is too harsh, 
to throw the pro-life community under the bus after the 2022 midterm elections because they're the ones to blame because of the abortion issue. That's not going to work. What other areas do you think Donald Trump could be vulnerable on? Well, I think that his biggest issue, in addition to the sanctity of human life, is his focus on the past, his grievance on the past. He lost the 2020 election, and then many of his candidates got beat in the 2022 midterms. That's got a lot of people thinking, is he the right one to be our standard bearer moving forward? Bob, is it fair to say that you're looking for anyone else to support other than Donald Trump? Well, there's no doubt. I've I've been very clear, I've been very open that uh, I consider myself a friend to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. But I really believe that for us to win in 2024, we need to have someone who can cast a compelling vision for the future of this country that can unite America again versus divide America. Now, the former president can make his case that he's still that guy. But I think if he gets beat in Iowa, I think it's game on to the nomination. I think if he wins Iowa and wins Iowa by a big margin, he's your nominee. That's Bob Vanderplotz, president and CEO of The Family Leader. Bob, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, what can a city really do about gun violence? The Supreme Court has sharply limited gun regulations. Many state legislatures have lifted regulations that they had. And so far, gun violence has killed more than 7,000 people this year. After two shootings in Columbus, Ohio, Mayor Andrew Ginther called for businesses to close early. When 10 people are shot, that we know of, and 11 guns recovered that we know of from one particular incident. That requires unprecedented change. It requires some sacrifice. So how did the business closing work out? Karen Kessler with Ohio Public Radio is on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What led the mayor to act now? Well, that shootout when 10 people were hurt on May 6th was one of two back-to-back violent incidents in two weekends in the well-known Short North area. It really got a lot of attention. It was described as chaos, bullets going through glass windows on storefronts, ricocheting around the area. Police officers fired their weapons. 11 guns recovered. The state is investigating. The following weekend, a fight ended with a 21-year-old man shot dead. Columbus had a record number of homicides in 2021. That number dropped last year, but the city recovered more guns than ever last year and is on track to surpass that number this year. And of course, the Short North, it's an arts and entertainment district, about 300 businesses there, and it attracts millions of people to the area. Mm, And you can just kind of picture that. Many cities have that kind of trendy district, which attracts a lot of business, a lot of nightlife. So how did the mayor respond to these shootings exactly? Last week, Mayor Andrew Ginther announced that the city was enforcing a midnight curfew for 13 to 17-year-olds. He signed an executive order that food trucks would shut down at midnight, and he asked for bars and restaurants, about a third of the businesses in that area are bars and restaurants, to close at midnight Friday and Saturday, and that parking would be restricted. Columbus police officers were stepping up patrols in the area, and anyone arrested for street racing would lose their vehicles and would not get plea bargains. The Hmm. city has to do these changes because they can't enact gun regulations. Columbus and the state of Ohio are in a court battle over which one actually has the power to regulate guns. How are people responding then to this effort to cut down on gun violence by cutting down on business? It doesn't seem that there were any major problems, though the scene over the weekend looked kind of like most weekends. Food trucks did close up. There were a lot of police officers, but bars and restaurants for the most part did not close early. Hmm. Many of them have private security and they want the city 
city to focus on other things, but the area still seemed to bring in visitors, some saying they actually appreciate the extra police presence. How did Ohio's Republican legislature respond to this move? Well, Republican lawmakers have passed laws banning Ohio cities, which are mostly run by Democrats, from enacting their own gun control legislation while they've been expanding gun rights at the state house, including allowing permitless concealed carry, expanding the stand your ground law to any place, not just a home. On Friday, two Republican state lawmakers introduced a bill that would ban mayors from enacting curfews for people under 18 unless they said there is what they called a clear and present emergency as determined by legislators or a city. Hmm. An effort to close down yet another avenue of response. Karen, thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Thanks. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're with WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, many low-income people are losing their Medicaid coverage as pandemic-era rules that kept them enrolled in the program expire. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Thousands of miles of underwater fiber optic cable crisscross the world on the ocean floor. Over 95% of all internet traffic carried between continents goes through this physical infrastructure, these cables. And so the internet we use every day would not function without them. Now those undersea cables are becoming part of a new battle between China and the U.S. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The latest installment of our podcast, The Common, is out. Today's episode focuses on the resignation of U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins. She stepped down Friday following two federal ethics investigations. Host Daryl C. Murphy and WBUR's Deborah Becker take a deep dive. Check out The Common wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. Sunny with a high near 62 today. There may also be some gusty winds. Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 46. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high near 64. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston at Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial auto insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at HintWater.com. From the University at Buffalo, working with the National Science Foundation to address a shortage of speech-language pathologists through artificial intelligence. More at buffalo.edu slash NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. During the COVID pandemic, Medicaid was a lifeline for more than 90 million people. For three years, states could not kick anyone off the public health insurance program. But that's changing quickly now, and many are finding themselves uninsured. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports. It's being called Medicaid unwinding. All 90 million beneficiaries will have their eligibility checked at some point over the next year. Ideally, those who are still eligible will keep their coverage, and those who don't qualify anymore will get dropped. But in reality, it's going to be a lot messier than that. Take Florida, for example. Last month, Liz Adams, who lives in Plant City, was trying to figure out the time of her son's biopsy appointment. Her son survived leukemia and has a variety of ongoing health problems. I called the surgery center. It's like, hey, what time is his appointment? Oh, we canceled that. He doesn't have insurance. So I jump on the portal and sure enough, they don't have insurance. She was incredibly frustrated. She then had to try and enroll her two kids in health insurance while also trying to figure out how to get her son's care back on track. I waited a year to get in with a rheumatologist and we finally got the biopsy and it finally got blood ordered. And I can't go do any of it because I can't put my insurance. Adams's kids were among 250,000 people who lost Medicaid in Florida last month. Joan Alker is with the Georgetown Center for Children and Families. I am very worried about Florida. We've heard the call center is overwhelmed. The notices are very confusing in Florida. They're very hard to understand. Of those who lost Medicaid in Florida, 80 percent of them lost it for procedural reasons, like they didn't respond to the notice. And many of them are children because Florida didn't expand Medicaid to more low-income adults. But Alker says unwinding is not going badly in every state. We're really seeing divergence here. We've seen very, very concerning numbers from Florida, from Arkansas, from Indiana, but we've seen much more reassuring numbers from Arizona and Pennsylvania. Elker says in Pennsylvania, only 10 percent of people whose applications were looked at lost coverage in April. She says it's up to each state how they manage this daunting task. But the federal government also has the power to make a state pause disenrollments, for instance. Elker says it remains to be seen if federal health officials will use that power in places where people who shouldn't be losing Medicaid are getting kicked off anyway. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. In the history of the United States, only two black women have ever served as senators. There's a chance that could change in 2024. California Senator Dianne Feinstein will not seek another term, and Barbara Lee is among the candidates to replace her. In many past cases, black women were defeated. From KQED in San Francisco, Scott Schaefer reports. In November of 2016, California Attorney General Kamala Harris made history as the first woman of color to win a U.S. Senate seat from the Golden State. I am so proud to represent this beautiful, diverse state. As an African-American woman who is also South Asian, she was representative of the Bay Area and California and the kind of pride we have in the mix of people that make our state innovative and strong. And that was certainly an advantage. Political consultant Mary Hughes has spent decades helping women win political office. She says Harris had unique qualities that helped her win the Senate seat, including a solid network of Bay Area women elected officials who helped open doors to deep-pocketed donors. So there was an existing network that could lift 
Kamala up and make introductions, not only in California, but across the country. Harris is one of just two black women ever elected to the Senate. Last year in North Carolina, Sherry Beasley tried and failed to become the third. The former North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice has won four other elections for statewide offices, but... The perception is always that the U.S. Senator is a white man. That is the presumption, and then we work from there. Her opponent was conservative Republican Ted Budd, who ran brutal TV ads tying her to a released child rapist. Sherry Beasley struck down a bipartisan law requiring GPS tracking for child predators. A monster who raped a seven... They were offensive, they were not true, and hugely deceptive. Beasley narrowly lost, and some supporters complained she could have won if the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee had used more funds to help her. Amy Allison, whose group She the People works to elect women of color, sees the North Carolina Senate race as part of a pattern. There's a lack of investment in Black women leadership and the buzz around Black women's leadership. Allison says Black women in particular face unfair doubts about their ability to raise money, making it harder to attract the best campaign team. That doubt can turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've seen time and time again Black women be dismissed or overlooked, not be taken seriously. She sees the same pattern playing out now as Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee is vying against two better-known white candidates, Representatives Adam Schiff and Katie Porter. Lee, a veteran progressive voice in Congress, says she knows the structural barriers black women have, like access to large donors. She says their fundraising strategy takes all that into account. So we have to have that added push and rely on low donors, people who can contribute $5, 10 a month recurring, and we'll be able to do that. LaFonza Butler, who worked on Kamala Harris's 2020 failed presidential run, now heads up EMILY's List, which helps women candidates raise money. She says there is an extra barrier that black women are having to make their way through, much of it driven by systemic biases. It's not new. It's not right. And I think that there is a generation of black women leaders across this country who are going to do everything required to make sure that it no longer continues. In California, 89-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein, hobbled by a nasty bout of shingles, is facing calls for her to resign before her term ends a year and a half from now. If the seat opens up, Governor Gavin Newsom has promised to name a black woman to fill it. Now that it looks possible that vacancy could occur, Newsom isn't talking much about the promise he made two years ago, saying he wishes Feinstein a full recovery. For NPR News, I'm Scott Schaefer in San Francisco. This is NPR News. You're starting your week with WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition in about five minutes, Lebanese Hezbollah fighters staged a military exercise this weekend in a rare show for international media. A Hezbollah official said they wanted to show their readiness to confront any aggression by Israel. It's 829. As you're listening to WBUR this morning, keep in mind we also offer a quick read of all the news that matters in Boston and beyond in your email inbox. Subscribe to WBUR today at WBUR.org newsletters. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Treasury Department is once again warning that early June is still a hard deadline for Congress to raise the nation's debt ceiling. Many experts, including the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, Mark Zandi, say the failure to reach an agreement would cripple the U.S. economy. It will be chaotic. The economy is going to likely go into recession. And the longer it drags on, uh, the more damage it will do, the more severe. And then words like catastrophic, uh, you know, come to mind. Sandy spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are scheduled to resume debt ceiling talks today after negotiations broke down over the weekend. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is preparing to launch a bid for the White House in 2024. NPR's Don Gagne reports on Scott's record over the years with a political career that started in the Charleston County Council. It's been a steady climb. He is the only black Republican in the Senate. He's a conservative. He is anti-abortion rights. He's a strong advocate of tax cuts as economic policy. But he is also as well known for his positive demeanor. He says over and over that there's far too much rancor in politics. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston's plans to rebuild the bridge to Long Island are moving forward. The old bridge to the island was closed and demolished in 2014 because of safety concerns. Boston wants to create a regional drug treatment center on the island, but city leaders in Quincy have blocked efforts to rebuild the bridge as construction would be done inside its borders. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu tells WCBB's on the record that the permitting process for a new bridge is nearly done, but she offered few other details on a timeline. It is a hefty price tag infrastructure-wise to construct and build a bridge. I think there should continue to be conversations about whether a ferry could help ferry folks over the span of the previous bridge that would require dock construction in partnership with Quincy as well. We'll hear more from the mayor today at 11 on WBUR's Radio Boston. People driving from Boston to Canada along Interstate 93 may have seen Border Patrol checks well south of the border. Now the government and civil liberties groups have settled a lawsuit over the use of those checkpoints. As Todd Bookman reports, the groups claim the stops amounted to unconstitutional searches. U.S. Border Patrol has regularly staged checkpoints on roads in northern New England, including on I-93 in the town of Woodstock, 90 miles from the Canadian border. The ACLU's lawsuit alleged that the stops are less about enforcing immigration laws and instead have become a way for Border Patrol to use drug-sniffing dogs on every vehicle passing through. In 2017, more than a dozen citizens were charged with low-level drug possession crimes following a checkpoint. Those cases were eventually thrown out. The two sides have now reached a settlement agreement. Border Patrol agrees to not stage the Woodstock checkpoint until at least 2025. In a statement, the ACLU says it is, quote, ready to intervene if or when the checkpoints resume. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. 
the woman known as Miss Jean, who starred in Boston's version of the kids' show Romper Room, has died. Jean Durkee worked as a school teacher in Lynn before hosting the children's show between 1958 and 1972. She was 90 years old. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. The Celtics now trail the heat in the Eastern Conference Finals, three games to none. Boston lost in Miami last night, 128-102. to The Celts have to win Game 4 tomorrow night or their season is over. The Red Sox were shut out by the Padres, 7-0 yesterday in San Diego. Tonight, they'll visit the L.A. Angels. Clear skies and windy today with high temperatures in the low 60s. Still clear tonight and temperatures fall to a low in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, about the same. Sunny with a high that may reach the mid-60s. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. The Lebanese political party and militant group Hezbollah has put on its biggest public show of military force in at least a decade at a base in South Lebanon close to the border with Israel. NPR's Ruth Sherlock was among the journalists invited to see the exercises. And a warning, there's lots of gunfire. Usually, Hezbollah gives journalists very little access to its military positions, fighters or weaponry. So imagine our surprise when we and the rest of Lebanon's press corps were invited to a Hezbollah camp in a sensitive position near the border. We were even more surprised by what came next. Serenaded by a brass band, we were escorted to a viewing platform by a parade ground. And then, for a deafening hour and a half, Hezbollah fighters unloaded their weapons around us in simulated attacks on fake Israeli positions. This is live ammunition being used. Artillery. Sniper fire hit targets well over 100 meters away. Muscle-bound fighters showed off their hand-to-hand combat skills and karate-chopped stacks of terracotta tiles with bare hands. Fighters leapt through a ring of flames. Rockets smashed into a nearby hillside where the group had laid out Israeli flags to represent a settlement. They also fired weapons from drones. So why do this now? It is a sensitive time with Israel. Last month, after Israeli police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, more rockets were fired into Israel from Lebanon than at any time since the end of the 2006 war. But Nick Blanford, a Hezbollah expert affiliated with the Atlantic Council, says this may actually be more a message to Hezbollah's Iranian financiers and to Lebanese. A kind of signaling to the support base that we're still here, we're still strong, 
For all the theatrics, the messaging by Hezbollah officials at the event was clear. This was about deterrence and not a call for war with Israel. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Southern Lebanon. Doctors have some advice for people who may be at risk for sexually transmitted infections. On any given day, one in five Americans has an STI. NPR's Will Stone reports on what to do. This next chapter in STI prevention comes down to a common run-of-the-mill antibiotic called doxycycline. It's already used to treat infections, including some STIs. The difference here is when you take it. Instead of waiting to be diagnosed with an STI, the medication is given out ahead of time so people can take it right after having unprotected sex. This approach is known as post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP. So in this case, with doxycycline, it's doxypep. We saw that this was safe. We saw that it was well-tolerated. We saw that it reduced sexually transmitted infections. That's Dr. Annie Lutkemeyer at the University of California, San Francisco. Lutkemeyer helped run a major clinical trial on doxypep. It showed that those who took doxycycline 24 to 72 hours after sex without a condom had a 65% reduction in STIs, specifically syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. And Lutkemeyer says this builds on other promising results from Europe. Not 100%, but there really are consistent reductions across the board. So far, research on doxypep has focused on men who have sex with men and transgender women. Those in Lutkemeyer's study either had an HIV diagnosis or were taking the HIV prevention drug PrEP and had a history of STIs. Our study does not inform everybody in the U.S. It informs a group of people who already had an elevated risk of sexually transmitted infections. But she says in time, doxypep could be used more broadly, regardless of someone's sexual orientation. It's very reasonable to think about this for just men in general who are at higher risk of sexually transmitted infections. The evidence doesn't yet support doing this for most women, though. A recent clinical trial had women in Kenya take doxypep. Here's Dr. Janelle Stewart at Hennepin Healthcare. Unfortunately, in our study, we saw no reduction in STIs. But Stewart says this is not the final word, and more research is needed. There's a clear need for STI prevention, and so it's incredibly disappointing that we don't have a solution to offer them right now. Even so, health leaders are feeling optimistic about doxypep. Dr. Leandro Mena leads STD prevention at the CDC. We recognize that more tools are needed given the increased burden of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis infection in the U.S. He says the CDC is hoping to release guidance on doxypep by the end of the summer. But some aren't waiting for that. Dr. Oliver Bacon works at the San Francisco City Clinic. He helped craft San Francisco's guidance for doxypep and is now offering it to some of his patients. I would say interest has been very high. (laughs) Turns out people were already taking doxycycline on their own. And not always in the ideal way. They were just taking doxy randomly. I mean, it was sort of like doxy anarchy out there. Um, and it, <laughs> and uh, we don't want that to happen. That's not good for anybody. It doesn't treat the problem. And it certainly doesn't help issues of antibiotic resistance. And that's the biggest hang up with doxypep. What could it mean for antibiotic resistance? The clinical trial in the U.S. tried to get at this by looking for signs of increased resistance among those who took doxypep. One concern was MRSA, a nasty bacteria that's sometimes treated with doxycycline. But there, the researchers didn't find any worrying evidence. And surprisingly, doxypep worked pretty well at curbing gonorrhea, even though many cases of gonorrhea are resistant to the class of antibiotics that doxycycline is a part of. 
Dr. Edward Hook, who's at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, says there's no STI pathogen with a greater propensity to develop resistance than gonorrhea. I think it's reasonable to assume resistance rates for gonorrhea in particular will increase. But Hook points out this well-known resistance is why other antibiotics are used for gonorrhea. And he's excited about doxypep's potential. What we've been trying to do and our efforts to control STIs for the last 50 years have not succeeded. It's time to do something different. And if the solution can be found in a cheap and widely available drug, all the better. Will Stone, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 845, we have a preview of the French Open, which is happening this year without defending champion Rafael Nadal. Low 60s today under sunny skies. It'll also be a bit windy. Tonight it falls to the upper 40s. Then tomorrow we may get to the mid-60s and it'll be sunny. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. And Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, zoonewengland.org. Dozens of companies in the Boston area have announced layoffs since the start of this year. It could be a sign of a downturn in the state's tech industry. But as WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports, it's a slowdown many were expecting. With higher interest rates, borrowing has become more expensive. Experts say startups will feel this the most. That's because they typically depend on loans to survive and grow. But Ari Fine Glantz from the New England Venture Capital Association says it's important to remember that 2021 and 2022 were record-breaking fundraising years for Massachusetts startups. Those numbers couldn't last forever. We were always going to come back to a bit of a correction because the last two and a half years were artificially frothy. Despite the layoffs, there are currently tens of thousands of unfilled tech jobs in the state, according to the tracking firm Lightcast. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. 
online at nutter.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldick. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. As fans head to the French Open this week to watch lesser-known players qualify for the main draw and to watch the legends practice, Rafael Nadal will not be there. He's recovering from a hip injury, so what does the French Open look like without him? Let's call John Wertheim, who's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and an analyst at the Tennis Channel. Hey there, John. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm okay. What's wrong with Nadal? He has a, uh, a hip injury he suffered in Australia. He's not played since. He is also uh, almost 37 years old, which uh, is, you know, almost dotage in uh, in tennis years. And what what is a French Open without Nadal? It's it's like uh, you know, this is this is Prince without Purple. This is going to be an interesting. Uh, this is going to be an interesting absence. Big I, transition. Here. I guess we should say, is this right? He has won the French Open 14 times, which must be the majority of the times he's ever played. Not a typo. His, his match record, 112 in three. Um, wow. He's won this event more than any tennis player in history has ever won any other event. And you can imagine with, uh, with a player with 14 titles uh, to his name absent, uh, the, the field opens up. Well, let's talk about the field. Who would be a favorite then? Novak Djokovic, who is tied with Nadal with 22 majors all time in this sort of great duel, is, you know, he's on paper the favorite, but he hasn't won a tournament since Australia, and he too, he's 36 years old as well. So um, Carlos Alcaraz, young Spaniard, um, sort of the, the seeds, uh, these are the green shoots of Rafa. He just turned 20 years old. He's probably the favorite. He won the US Open last year. He's a splendid player, but he's just coming off a loss to a player outside the top 100. So the big question is, does he look at this as sort of a one-off or mm. is his confidence dented headed into this big event? Okay, so an injury may in fact open the way for some newer talent possibly anyway. What about on the women's side? I understand there's also a, a leading woman who will miss the French Open. Um, it's a similar type of story. Iga Svantec of Poland, again, a, a splendid player. She's won this event twice before. She, she won the U.S. Open in the fall and, and didn't even play near her best tennis, but she too is coming off a, a defeat and an injury. But, you know, it's funny. Men tennis used to have these three stalwarts, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, these three sort of reliable war horses and the women's field was wide open and now it's the men's field that's wide open and the, the women's field has their their real favorite in, in Schwantek provided she's fully healthy. What about Simona Halep? What happened to her? Simona Halep is a former number one, a, a former French Open champion and she to, to great surprise had a positive doping test. She hasn't played since and Recently, this weekend, there was news that she had sort of a, a second violation of her biological passport. You know, essentially, that's de facto a second violation. So it's it's very out of character. And as much as we ever know these athletes, there's a lot of surprise. But it doesn't look good. And she's she's north of age 30, and two doping violations uh, does not bode well for a comeback. I guess you better explain what a biological passport is for those who don't know. In international athletics, one way to try to crack down on doping was they had players essentially provide a, a biological passport of, of all their uh, their bioinfo and biodata. And if there were inconsistencies, if there was a spike in testosterone, that would be an indication of doping. And uh, we, we haven't had many violations of this. Usually it's sort of a, a 
a dirty doping test, usually it's a violation, but in this case, it's these irregularities in the biological passport. Understood. John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated, thanks so much. Thanks anytime. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Faldin. Coming up in the next few minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, the Marketplace Morning Report has a preview of the summer travel season. The number of Americans traveling is expected to nearly reach the record level set the year before the pandemic started. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. It's been five years since droves of educators took to the streets in a sea of red t-shirts demanding better pay, benefits, and respect. Really at the center of it was this realization that our state legislature had neglected public education for so long. What's changed since then and what has not? On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will meet today to continue negotiations on the nation's debt ceiling. South Carolina Senator Republican Tim Scott is sent to announce today he's running for president. And Facebook's parent company Meta faces a $1.3 billion fine from the European Union for failing to protect user data. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. Low 60s today, and it'll be sunny and windy tonight, upper 40s. Then we may reach the mid-60s tomorrow under sunny skies. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston at 851. We are hitting the road. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. From Marketplace, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer in for David Brancaccio. We're just a few days away from the start of the summer travel season over Memorial Day weekend, and it looks like it'll be a busy one. AAA expects more than 42 million Americans to take a trip of 50 miles or more. That's close to the record level set the year before the pandemic started. As Marketplace's Henry Epp reports, things could get especially busy at airports. Expect long lines if you're headed to the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport over the holiday weekend, says spokesperson Perry Cooper. We are one of the smallest airports by footprint in the country, so we are already having challenges with space and wait times. Cooper says passengers should get there a few hours early. Same goes for pretty much every big airport, as AAA expects passenger numbers to exceed Memorial Day weekend records set in 2019. Airlines should be better prepared to meet demand than they were last summer. They've staffed up, but also cut back on flights, says AAA's Paula Twydale. So you're going to have uh, flights that are full, probably less selection and higher prices. 
Despite those prices, people are still eager to spend on travel, says industry analyst Henry Hardevelt with the Atmosphere Research Group. What we know is that people have this sense of FOMO. They don't want to miss out on things. They're choosing to take that big trip now, Hardevelt says, because who knows what the future holds. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up a fraction. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up less than half a percent, with the Dow future up 32 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is down at 3.6 percent. The National Association for Business Economics released a survey of economists this morning. A majority of them do not expect the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates this year, and they're almost evenly split on whether or not we'll see a recession in the next year. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed with people in mind to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Odoo, a full suite of integrated business management software dedicated to helping businesses of all sizes with billing, accounting, CRM, and e-commerce. Odoo.com. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are set to resume negotiations over the federal government's debt limit today. A default could happen in just weeks if nothing is done to raise or suspend the debt ceiling. Republicans are looking for spending cuts in exchange for raising the debt limit. One of their proposals is to tighten so-called work requirements for social safety net programs like food stamps and Medicaid. Work requirements are often traced back to the 1990s and the bipartisan welfare reform bill passed under former President Bill Clinton. But work requirements actually have a much deeper history. It's chronicled in a new season of Marketplace's investigative podcast, The Uncertain Hour. Chrissy Clark is the show's host and a senior correspondent here. She spoke with Marketplace's Nova Sappho. So tell me about the history of early work requirements in welfare programs. When did they come to be? So let's take one of our earliest federal welfare programs, Cash Assistance for Poor Families, or what we commonly call welfare. It was created in the Great Depression under the New Deal. So the idea was that parents facing hardship, often widows, would get aid so they didn't have to work and could focus on raising their kids. But local welfare offices had a lot of power to decide who was, quote, unquote, worthy of this kind of aid. And overwhelmingly at the time, that meant white families. And when one welfare official was asked why so few Black people got welfare, they said the welfare office didn't want to, quote, interfere with local labor conditions and that Black mothers were expected to work, so they didn't need public assistance. Ah, wow. That's just chilling. So implicit work requirements for some people along racial lines, but still not officially mandated work requirements for everyone. When did that start? Well, fast forward to the early 1960s, and the welfare roles have started to grow across all races. But what really gets attention is that there's a growing share of Black families who are receiving welfare. And this is for a lot of reasons. For one thing, white women actually start leaving the welfare roles because there's a new, more generous safety net that opens up for them. The upshot is the percentage of families on the welfare rolls who are Black more than doubles from 1940 to 1960. And this is right in the time when we start hearing some of the first rhetoric around the problems of welfare and some really forceful calls for putting work requirements into the program, like from this guy. We challenge the right of freeloaders 
to make more on relief than when working. And we challenge the right of people to quit jobs at will and go on relief like spoiled children. This is the city manager of Newburgh, New York, and that's one of the first places that experimented with putting welfare work requirements into welfare in the early 60s. And this guy, Joseph Mitchell, claims that a wave of Black families from the South is moving to his city to loaf on welfare and avoid work. And he blames them for many of the city's economic problems. His claims are debunked, and the work requirements he tried to create get rolled back. But his campaign to put work requirements into welfare got traction all the same. Hmm. And how does all of this connect to the work requirements we have in cash welfare today? So those were created in the bipartisan 1990s welfare reform bill. And the arguments for them still had undercurrents of these racist tropes around so-called welfare queens and things like that. But some of the focus at that point had shifted to this idea that welfare had become a trap and that work requirements were all about helping people find jobs and, quote, self-sufficiency. And yet, since the 90s, study after study has found that most work requirement compliance-based programs are, to quote one study by Mathematica, mostly not effective at improving the economic independence of welfare participants. Chrissy Clark, host of Marketplace's investigative podcast, The Uncertain Hour, which dives much more deeply, by the way, into this topic and the welfare-to-work industrial complex that's developed. I highly recommend you listen. It's available at Marketplace.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Chrissy, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Nova. I'm Nancy Marshall-Ginzer with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.